This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, April 17th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, how education advocacy groups are responding to the shutdown of public school buildings for the semester. And what Mississippians need to know about stimulus money from the CARES Act. Then the disproportionate effects of the coronavirus on African Americans in the Delta. Plus, a look at the role of federalism and states' rights within the pandemic response. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi public school teachers and students will not be going back to their classrooms. Governor Tate Reeves extended his order to keep school buildings closed through the end of the semester. Rachel Cantor, executive director of Mississippi First, tells our Desiree Frazier the circumstances are creating new challenges for ill-equipped school districts and the need for future contingency plans. We know that some of our school districts, even in the best of times, struggle with providing services to their students. And right now we are in an extraordinary moment in which we are confronting challenges that we just never have before. A lot of our school districts have done very well with that. They have been able to do a lot of really hard work and turn themselves into a provider of quality online content. But we know that other school districts that struggle even in the best of times have not been able to make that shift, either because they don't have the capacity within the school buildings, because their students don't have access to Internet, because they don't have access to Internet connected devices, even if they were able to get access to Internet. And that has made it incredibly challenging. So when we are able to go back to school or when we are able to get back to some semblance of normal, We're going to have to figure out how we reach those kids and how we bring them back up to speed because we know that there are equity gaps out there. There may be some who are thinking students uh, should pass to the next grade. Others who are thinking how can students pass to the next grade because they haven't uh, had these uh, weeks in school. What do you think the right approach is? Well, I think it's really going to depend on what school districts feel like they've been able to do in this time period. I think what school districts need to figure out is, do have they acquired enough knowledge? Have they mastered enough skills that we can promote them on to the next grade and do what we need to do next year to make sure that there are no skill gaps there? If it's not the case that there is some, and there's some subset of kids that promoting them to the next grade is really going to put them on uneven footing for the rest of their educational career, then we've got to figure out whatever we have to do to make that to make that up. We need to make sure that we're planning now for what might happen in over the summer, over the course of next year. You know, the public health experts say it's possible we could get a resurgence in the fall. 
what contingency plans can we be making now so that we have a more smooth process of closing and opening schools, making sure that we're making the best use of time when we are able to go to school so that when we're out of school, it feels less disruptive. Rachel Cantor of Mississippi First. Joanne Mickens with Parents for Public Schools supports the governor's decision, but says equity is a concern and there are no top-down guidelines for schools to follow. Another concern, of course, is the equity issue. And by by that I mean um, it's obvious that there is no overall um, set of guidelines uh, from the Department of Ed or the governor or anyone else that basically is directing school districts as to what they should be doing um, while the children are out of school. So as usual, we're going to have some school districts that that move quickly and effectively and efficiently, and others that uh, might lag and might need a bit more guidance. So uh, equity actually does become quite an issue um, in this situation. Why would you say that there is a, so to speak, patchwork approach to this? Well, it's, it, there doesn't appear to be a top-down recommendation. And as the governor spoke, one thing we know is definitely clear that we're definitely, definitely going to do is that we're going to close all public school buildings. That is um, for sure. And that was really the only certainty that I heard expressed. And I recognize that time is needed for there to be a plan put in place. The governor threw out a couple of really good ideas um, and he mentioned um, the need for um, some summer sessions or early return to school. But I didn't hear those as definite things that are going to happen. I heard those as recommendations or suggestions. So it sounds pretty open-ended, like every school district will have the freedom, the option to do what they want. Right. And of course, that's what brings us back around to, because there is so much choice, will some children find themselves at a disadvantage while others will not? Joanne Mickens is the executive director of Parents for Public Schools. Superintendent of Education, Dr. Carrie Wright, will join our Michelle McAdoo and MPB Director of Education, Tara Wren, this morning on Mississippi Education Connection to discuss the extended shutdown and take questions from listeners. Tune in at 10 o'clock. Next, what Mississippians need to know about stimulus money from the CARES Act. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Some Mississippians have started receiving the stimulus payments made available through the CARES Act passed by Congress last month. Others are still waiting. Dr. Nancy Lottridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives Incorporated and co-host of Money Talks, joins us to discuss the stimulus package and the impact of the CARES Act on unemployment. If you have your banking information already on file with the IRS, and believe it or not, the majority of us already do, then they're going to just automatically send that to you. Um, Some pay taxes through that or get a refund through that direct deposit. So that's an easy way for them to get money directly into our hands. For someone who's waiting on a paper check, is that going to take a lot longer? Um, It will take a little bit longer. Um, Now, we're not exactly sure how much longer. Um, 
And we're just now hearing from our clients, just like you, Karen. Oh, I just saw it that it popped up. And the IRS just um, created an online tool called Get My Payment. And that's a way for you to check to see, well, where is my payment? Because they have to do it in waves. And um, for people who um, maybe they didn't file their taxes because if you're below a certain income limit, you're not required to do that. So maybe they don't have your information. The the trickier thing is going to be for those who might not have bank accounts who really do need to get a paper check. Again, that may take a little bit longer. They do have addresses. Um, I'm trying to uh, encourage people to wait just a little while. Don't get too anxious because it does take them a while to get all of these out. But if you don't have anything by the uh, end of the month, certainly you can then contact the IRS directly and see if they can track it based on your... You say, where's my money? (laughs) Let's talk about this money, what this means. Is this an out-and-out payment? It's a relief check? Is it a taxable form of income? What is it? I don't believe it's a taxable form of income. Now, the way it's been described is like a tax credit for next year. So we're not really sure how that's going to affect us on next year's taxes. Um, but um, the idea is that it is stimulus money, that, that they want us to spend that money. And for some people, that means they just need to spend it on basic things because they're out of work or their income has dropped dramatically. Um, for people who um, are comfortable and still will get this check, I'm encouraging them to find a small business that you can help out. I want to talk about the unemployment now. Uh, For people filing for unemployment, there is an extra $600 that will be tacked on to their payment. Many Uh Mississippians, in fact, people around the country, are trying to file unemployment, and they can't because the system is just overrun. Right. What do you recommend for Mississippians who just can't get through to to file? Try to look for lower traffic times. Um, if you need to place a phone call, that's trickier because you have to do it during business hours. The Mississippi system, the maximum payment per week is $235, and that amount is going to be adjusted based on your income previous and the number of hours you were working, whether you're full-time or part-time. What we understand is that the $600 a week coming from the federal side is not going to be adjusted. Um, So that is excellent news. Bear in mind, even though that's coming from the federal side, this is all being managed by the state of Mississippi and goes through our system. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson is the president of New Perspective. You've offered some great information today. We really appreciate it, Nancy. Thanks, Karen. Coming up, the disproportionate effects of the coronavirus on African Americans in the Delta. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
The coronavirus is disproportionately affecting the African-American community across the country, and the numbers emerging from the Mississippi Department of Health suggest higher death rates from COVID-19 for African-Americans in the state. MPB's Alexander Watts examines community response to some of the most vulnerable in the region. Greenville Mayor Eric Simmons speaks to a crowd while standing on the steps of City Hall. Those attending the press conference are practicing social distancing and wearing masks. People are dying. African Americans are dying at a higher rate than any others in the United States and in Mississippi. Greenville is in Washington County, which has a population of 44,000 with 65 confirmed COVID-19 cases and two deaths. Throughout Mississippi, the coronavirus is infecting and killing black people at an alarming rate. According to the latest statistics from the health department, more than half of confirmed cases and two-thirds of deaths are African-American. Those figures concern State Representative Abe Hudson Jr., who represents Bolivar and Sunflower Counties. That is very concerning to me because the Delta has a high population of Black folks. This virus has no race, but it is impacting Black folks, African Americans, in a very detrimental way. Hudson lives in Bolivar County, which is almost two-thirds African American. The county has 75 confirmed cases and five deaths from COVID-19, making it one of the counties with the most cases. Generational poverty and inequality, systemic racism, lack of health care, food insecurity, and a high number of uninsured are some of the disparities in the Delta that contribute to the high numbers. Larry Muhammad is a barber from Greenville. He says the figures are sad for him, but not shocking. And for almost a month, Muhammad says he's been staying in. Because I'm a barber, I can't go to work because I tend to touch people when I'm working. That's my job. I have to touch people. I don't want to give it to anyone. And I don't want to get it from anyone, so I stay home. So I've been at home for the past three weeks. Muhammad is doing his part to help his community fight the coronavirus pandemic. He's been collecting and distributing bleach and other supplies to residents. Muhammad is not alone in his efforts. Pam Chapman, a community leader and activist, says more and more people have been contacting her for groceries and supplies. I have been able to give out at least 20,000 plus face masks. We have given out several hundred bags of groceries. We have given out cleaning products such as bleach and Clorox wipes, hand sanitizers. Chapman says while the situation is bringing people together, it's also highlighting the inequalities and resources. It is a very heartbreaking situation. There are a lot of African Americans here in the Mississippi Delta that are suffering from COVID-19. And a lot of their family members are looking for direction and looking for answers. It's time for the Black community to actually come together for real, for real. Chapman is collaborating with the Bolivar County Council on Aging, a transportation service. The group's white vans can be seen in the area providing rides to work and medical appointments and is one of the few public transportation services in the Delta. Because of social distancing, access to those rides has decreased. But LaShonda McKinney, executive director of the group, says the service is still helping those in need. I've received a call from our local um, our sheriff um, of Bolivar County. It was mentioned that a senior was not able to get her medication because she didn't have transportation and because of the recommendations for them to stay inside. And we were able to jump in right then and say, yes, we'll be able to do that. And from that conversation, we implemented our program for that. McKinney says this new way of doing business is keeping some residents employed at a time when many have lost their jobs. Shuttle drivers are now being paid to disinfect the shuttles that are still in service. You know, the job that we do 
And if we were not able to do this, a lot of people would not have access. Health centers in the Delta are ramping up testing efforts as Mississippi approaches its peak number of cases. And as Mississippi goes through the pandemic, some are working to make sure nobody is left behind. Alexandra Watts, MPB News. Coming up, a look at the role of federalism and states' rights within the pandemic response. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. President Donald Trump is unveiling a plan to open America again, this following a month of economic uncertainty due to the threatening pandemic. But what power does the chief executive hold when it comes to states returning to business as usual? Matt Steffi, professor at Mississippi College School of Law, joins our Michael Guidry to discuss the role of federalism in the nation's response to the coronavirus. There's an old saying that the tools belong to those who can use them. And the the federal government has a great deal of potential authority to act in times of national emergency. There's a number of things that the federal government can do. It can uh, make declarations of emergency, freeing up federal funds. There's It has authority under something called the Defense Production Act to order U.S. companies to manufacture much you know, needed equipment, whether that's military or civilian. The states, of course, have the primary, what's called police power, or the primary power and responsibility over the day-to-day health, safety, and welfare of their citizens. So, you know, it's not a case of clear lines of authority as opposed to uh, overlapping and we hope complementary authority and responsibility. So, what extent is the Defense Production Act being utilized, and is there room for it to be more strongly enforced? Oh, there's much, much more room for the Defense Production Act to be employed. I think the question of many is why wasn't it used earlier? Why isn't it now being used more? vigorously to step in and, you know, manufacture and distribute PPE, uh, manufacture and distribute ventilators, and whatever else, right, that hospitals and healthcare workers currently need. I think there's little doubt that if that were used more vigorously, the shortages would be fewer. One of the, one of the ironic, if nothing else, Uh, things about this latest clash between President Trump and Governor Cuomo is that I'm not quite sure what President Trump is talking about. For example, he claims the sole authority to decide when the economy is reopened. The problem is he's not the one who shut it down. Right, that he more or less shoved state governors out into the forefront and said, you decide, you take action. We're here to back you up a little and when we can. With the way things are being handled right now, with the Defense Production Act not being fully utilized, with states at times 
bidding against each other for necessary equipment and supplies. Is what we are witnessing right now the cooperative powers that the federal system is designed to showcase? In a, in a word, no. What we are witnessing is at the state level, many uh, state governors deciding to take action on their own to protect the health, safety, and welfare of their citizens in the absence of an effective response at the federal level. So in that sense, it's a victory for federalism, right? That in the absence of the shared powers before the state, with states and the federal government, we would only have so much action as took place in Washington. I don't know, you know, it's a little too early for history to judge how the government's response was, particularly at the federal level. You've talked at length um, about the White House and the Trump administration's position early on, putting the states at the forefront and telling them to you know, address this and that the federal government would be there as a backup. The president has now famously said that the president has total power or total authority, I believe was his was his phrase. Those two things seem to be deeply contrasted, um, that the states were given the power to address the issue and shut down as appropriately needed. And then now with the desire, it seems, to get the economy back up and running, the president wants to assume total authority to, to do so. In between those two contrasting positions, which best reconciles with the Constitution? Well, that's a really good question. The first position has the advantage of being true to the actual facts on the ground, that the states were kind of uh, put in the forefront, told to go uh, take the action they deem necessary, and essentially fend for themselves uh, uh, first and look to the federal government second. Um, because of that, the the assertion of total authority is not only is it irreconcilable with the with the with the states being thrust to the forefront, but at this point it's in you know it's irreconcilable with that. In other words, because the federal government did not take the action to close down the uh, economy, did not close down the country, did not issue a nationwide stay-at-home order. Because those orders and actions were taken at the state level, it is simply not possible for the president to undo what the president didn't put in place. Now, I suppose the president could, starting today, issue a series of nationwide directives that the president could then claim the authority to implement keep in force and 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 roll back but as things stand today with the closure orders issued by state governors the to, for the president to claim that he has the total authority of when those closure orders end that statement is completely false matt steffi professor mississippi college school of law as always Thank you, Professor Steffi. It's genuinely my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. 
Governor Tate Reeves is holding a press conference at 9 o'clock today. He's expected to address Mississippi's shelter-in-place order, which is due to expire on Monday. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.